Hello, and welcome to today's podcast episode on bipolar depression. This episode is part of the Clinical Care Options podcast series on advancing care in bipolar depression. I'm Dr. Greg Mattingly, an associate clinical professor at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri, and president of the Midwest Research Group in St. Louis as well. With me today to discuss the differential diagnosis and comorbidities in bipolar depression is one of my good friends and one of our you know, national experts in the field, Dr. Vladimir Malatek, a clinical professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of South Carolina School of Medicine in Greenville, South Carolina. Let's go ahead and jump into today's discussion, Vlad, and let's start with talking about just the differential diagnosis. When you're a clinician and you're trying to untangle what's going on in the lives of someone, what are the things you start with when you help to distinguish bipolar disorder from, let's start with bipolar versus depression? What are things we should think about from a clinical perspective? Well, Greg, as you know, it's a very clinically relevant uh, question for a very simple fact that uh, this is the most uh, frequently made misdiagnosis. So we know that individuals who have both been screened positive and established to have bipolar diagnosis using structured clinical interview, uh, majority of these individuals actually were diagnosed with major depressive disorder. Um, so indeed, uh, um, a major, major clinical challenge. Uh, what are some of the indicators of uh, bipolarity? So there are some relatively simple descriptive uh, indicators as in frequency of episodes. So individuals who have bipolar disorder uh, typically will have more mood episodes. So if we hear that in the last five years, patient has had 10, 15 episodes that uh, uh, clearly speaks to risk of uh, bipolar disorder versus unipolar depression. Uh, onset of depression also tends to be different. Uh, in unipolar depression, by and large, it is very insidious, very gradual onset of depression. And most of the time, patients will not be able to name precisely a week during which they became depressed. Uh, it is not the case with bipolar illness in that it has much more rapid both on and off. So very often patients will be able to say, oh, I became uh, depressed week before Thanksgiving. And also as, as the uh, episode response to treatment, uh, we see it clear up much more rapidly than would be the case in unipolar depression. Uh, something that is very apropos uh, in terms of seasonal pattern, uh, both unipolar and bipolar depression uh, have primary peak in the late fall and winter months. But the part that is intriguing and maybe not as well known, uh, that there is a secondary peak for bipolar depression, and it is uh, middle of the summer. So individuals uh, who repeatedly become depressed in July or August, uh, uh, may actually suffer from bipolar depression. Again, this is not a clear-cut scenario, but yet one of the red flags. In terms of uh, onset of uh, depression, uh, bipolar depression typically will have onset in the late teenage years. Uh, this is especially the case in, in female patients, where bipolar starts with depressive episode 80% of the time. Uh, unipolar depression uh, usually starts in the early to mid-20s, uh, sometimes even late 20s, so a little bit uh, a different pattern. Uh, 
suicidality, substance abuse, uh, risk for hospitalization are all greater in individuals who have bipolar versus uh, unipolar depression. And of course, something that is really important to us is uh, treatment history. So in individuals uh, who have failed two appropriate antidepressant trials, when I say appropriate, uh, duration of at least three or four weeks, optimally around six weeks, appropriate dose of antidepressant. So two failed trials have been associated in literature with a risk of anywhere between 25 to 50% of bipolar disorder. So again, repeated uh, unsuccessful trials of antidepressants uh, are very important indicator. Um, then some of the ones uh, that, that uh, obviously, as a seasoned clinician, you're aware of, uh, non-response to antidepressant is one possibility. But the other possibility would be induction of mixed symptomatology. So patients uh, who, after antidepressant treatment, become more anxious, more irritable, have greater difficulty with their sleep, become agitated, rapid thoughts, uh, uh, pressured speech, uh, less need for sleep. Uh, those manifestations in response to antidepressant treatment are obviously very concerning and point in the direction of uh, bipolarity. And uh, fan, uh, finally, family history. If there is a if there is a family member with a positive history of uh, bipolar disorder, it more doubles than doubles the odds that our patient may be suffering from bipolar disorder. On the other hand, if this is a first degree relative, in that case, the risk of our patient having a bipolar disorder is increased, increased five to sevenfold. So uh, these are just some of the usual indicators. Maybe there are things that uh, you pay attention to, Greg. No, I think you hit them all. Let me kind of summarize what I heard you say and kind of what I've always thought about. So these would probably be my big five, and I think it echoes exactly what you've said. So early onset. We know bipolar disorder tends to have an earlier onset, five to 10 years earlier than typical unipolar depression. So if the onset of the episode is before age 20 to 25, probably increases your suspicion for bipolar. Number two was multiple episodes. So if you look through their history and you see these rapid cycling, lots of episodes, I haven't depressed, been depressed once or twice, but I have episodes maybe several times a year, lots of times throughout my life. So multiple episodes. Number three, and I, I love that you brought this up because I think we forget about it, is the seasonality and the hormonal influences of bipolar. Both seasons can trigger an episode with bipolar. We see it with our patients, but we also know those patients tend to be very sensitive to hormonal fluctuations, postpartum episodes, peripartum episodes, things of that nature. Family history, as you talked about, the heritability of bipolar is one of the most genetic conditions in all of medicine. And then finally, those antidepressant misadventures. Maybe that person that you're considering, are they treatment-resistant depression? Step back and say, do I have the right diagnosis? Maybe they have a different version of depression, and that's why standard antidepressants haven't worked so well. So I think those would be my big five, Vlad. Let me ask you something that you touched on, but it's something new now with DSM-5, and that's the concept of mixed features. So we know that very early on, and I did a study years ago saying, okay, listen, if you have depression with mixed features, what have you not responded to? And then what does that mean about your future if we follow you down the line as far as maybe developing bipolar? So how do we think about that depression with mixed features? How do you sort that out and what do you watch for on down the line? 
uh, Greg, you're raising another very relevant uh, clinical point. Uh, Namely, uh, prior to DSM-5, one could not diagnose unipolar patient with mixed features. So what does it practically mean? Well, it means that they would have three or more symptoms of the opposite polarity. So they have a major depressive episode and three or more hypomanic-manic symptoms. Uh, those, the, the three that are most prevalent tend to be pressured speech. Uh, in addition to that, uh, rapid thoughts, racing thoughts, and decreased need for sleep. Yep. Now, other, like grandiosity, uh, can occur, but the three that I mentioned are the more common ones. Uh, it does actually have a very strong predictive value because uh, some of these individuals who are initially diagnosed uh, as uh, MDD with mixed features may convert and their diagnosis may, may change to bipolar disorder. The patients who are at the greatest risk of converting would be the ones who have more than three. Uh, mixed features. As a matter of fact, if they have three or more mixed features, uh, long-term risk, so over a decade, of converting to uh, bipolar disorder is double compared to the individuals who only have uh, one or two uh, mixed symptoms. Uh, So again, something that is very important uh, uh, to differentiate, are we dealing with MDD with mixed features versus bipolar one versus bipolar two? So Uh, What can help us? Uh, Typically, what patients report and what we see now will not answer that question. So in order to ascertain if they have bipolar 1 or bipolar type 2, we have to resort to doing some detective work. Uh, We need to peel back the layers of their mood disorder and see if at any point in the past, these individuals had hypomanic symptoms. In duration of uh, uh, four or more days, those are criteria for hypomania, associated with mild to moderate uh, impairment in functioning. If impairment in functioning was greater than moderate, in that case, we're dealing with mania and bipolar type 1 as opposed to bipolar type 2. So uh, I guess the way that we can determine that it is MDD with mixed features uh, versus uh, uh, bipolar 2, no prior history of hypomania. Uh, Versus bipolar 1, no prior history of mania. And again, requirement there is uh, duration of seven days or more. Uh, Mania is associated uh, or can be associated with hallucinations and delusions and disorganized thought process. Uh, In addition to to that, uh, the impairment is uh, uh, marked or severe. Um, If the patient attempts suicide is hospitalized, they are automatically are diagnosed with mania if they have all these symptoms present, even with absence of psychosis. So again, uh, it is uh, upon us to establish if this patient has any history in the past consistent with hypomania or mania. And if there is that information, then obviously it's not MDD. If we ha- find no such information, then our diagnosis is major depressive disorder with mixed features. Uh, w- would there be something else that you do or something that helps you make that determination, Greg? No, I think you summarized it. And Vlad, I've been a part of two different studies. Uh, one was one with Patricia Supes, and this was years ago when they were just thinking about the mixed feature modifier. And you summarized it right. First of all, 
Mixed features can be depression with mixed features. We're not bipolar yet. We could be bipolar in the making, but we have not manifest a manic or a hypomanic episode. Or mixed features can be a part of bipolar disorder. Bipolar depressed with mixed features, bipolar manic with mixed features. What we found in this study that we did probably almost a decade ago is that people that had just depression with mixed features, when we asked them, what have you not responded well to in the past? Number one, they chose antidepressants. Hmm. They said antidepressants haven't worked very well. The middle ground as far as what seemed to work was mood stabilizers. And what they said they responded the best to was low doses of atypicals in this study we did. And so first of all, we knew people with depression with mixed features already were showing that they weren't the classic antidepressant responders. And then, as you said, Joe Biederman did a study where he looked at people that had three or more mixed symptoms with depression, followed them over time. And if you have three or more mixed symptoms, certainly be on the lookout that this may be the early stages that goes on to manifest as bipolar disorder. So I think you just stick that in your radar screen. Let's try to do some rapid fire because we've got a lot of topics here, Vlad. Let's start with ADHD and then we'll move on to anxiety. Okay. About the, the bipolar ADHD conundrum. Is it bipolar or is it ADHD or could it be both? You know, it's it's really interesting question. And uh, uh, the answer to your very complex uh, question is very simple. And it is yes, it can be all of the above. Uh, namely, uh, there are symptoms in ADHD that are very reminiscent of bipolar disorder in that uh, there will be emotional instability. Uh, there may be changes in sleep. But on the other hand, the, the, the changes and the symptoms of bipolar disorder uh, in the background of ADHD are very different. And here's what I mean. Uh, if the patient has psychotic symptoms, that's more than ADHD. If the patient has grandiosity, decreased need for sleep, uh, those are not common manifestations of ADHD. If the patient has hypersexuality, uh, I, I remember seeing uh, very early in my practice, some, some three decades ago, uh, a youngster uh, who was making sexual overtures towards his teacher. He was nine years old. She was a mature woman. That is a very unusual scenario, right? And speaks to potential bipolarity. Uh, how often does it happen? If we look at the epidemiologic studies, uh, these numbers are all over the place. Uh, but in general, when it comes to ADHD, uh, roughly 20% of patients will have uh, predilection towards bipolar uh, disorder of some sort. So uh, ADHD tends to be associated more with bipolar 2 than with uh, bipolar 1. But uh, altogether, about uh, 20% will have a comorbid bipolar disorder. Uh, when it comes to bipolar disorder, uh, these numbers also range from 20 all the way to 35% of these individuals uh, uh, meeting criteria for ADHD. So there is very strong association. Um, it's really interesting that uh, genome-wide association studies that have looked at polygenic risk scores are coming up with some very, very interesting uh, uh, revelations if you will. Uh, what, what do I mean? We look at these psychiatric categories as being relatively pure categories. Uh, this is not what genetic research is showing us. So, you know, think about uh, a structure made out of Legos. And if somebody has a bipolar disorder, let's say it is represented by red Legos. 
But if uh, there are some purple egos representing the risk for schizophrenia, then their manifestation is a little bit different. And these individuals are actually not going to respond very well to lithium, for example. Same is true if they have genes that are risk for ADHD. If they have genes that are risk for ADHD, they will have earlier onset of bipolar disorder. It will also not respond very well to treatment. And they're at the highest, higher risk of attempting suicide and having uh, substance use disorders. And then uh, there is an influx, let's say, of anxiety-related genes uh, via anxiety polygenic risk score, also an earlier onset, also less response to treatment, also greater risk of suicide. So what we are finding is that in reality, our clinical presentation may reflect a mix of different genetic uh, components. where we see one dominant component, which will influence clinical presentation most of the time, but then some that are hidden, but do influence treatment response and do influence clinical picture. Uh, and I, I don't know, uh, thinking about it in, in those terms, uh, Greg, do you find it to be more confusing or do you find it to be more helpful? Vlad, I think all clinicians in this field know that it's both confusing and helpful, right? Um, So we know that there are genetic risks that increase the risk of both ADHD and bipolar, and quite often those risks run together. And I think Mm -hmm. that's from a clinical perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, I go back to, you know, one of my mentors from WashU who came from the NIH, Barbara Geller. Barbara did a study years ago of kids with ADHD versus kids with bipolar. And the best symptoms to help discriminate were the symptoms you just chose. Decreased need for sleep. Racing thoughts unusual and delusional kind of grandiosity, hypersexuality. Those were symptoms that she saw in the bipolar kids who were really young, 9, 10, 11 years old. They were unusual in just pure ADHD. And there was a large meta-analysis that came out of the group at King's College looking at what percent of kids with ADHD go on to have bipolar. They didn't have bipolar originally, but they had just had ADHD. It was around 10% if you look at the overall numbers. And then as you said, if we do cross-sectional studies, we know those numbers can be up around 20% that may have ADHD and bipolar at the same time. Let's talk about anxiety just briefly. We know that anxiety is a very common comorbid symptom, but Vlad, how in the world would a clinician ever miss bipolar and give it a label of anxiety? We know it's Uh, one of the common misdiagnoses. So how does somebody get that wrong? uh, Well, um, again, I can refer back to my clinical experience. Uh, So I remember this happened some 20, 25 years ago. Uh, There was a woman uh, who was referred to inpatient treatment. Uh, uh, This is a lady who had a very prominent role in the society, uh, was seen by her primary care physician. Uh, She would have been very reluctant to see a mental health professional at that time. And uh, she was very upset and angry that she was hospitalized uh, because uh, uh, she just has anxiety. She has panic attacks, which is accurate. Uh, she really was having panic attacks, increasingly so over the course of four or five days. But after reviewing her treatment, she was treated with an SNRI. And uh, the, the more panic attacks she had, the greater the dose of SNRI was utilized. And finally, it got to the point where panic attacks were unbearable, but she also let it be known that she had actually not slept for three days. She was emotionally very reactive. Uh, Her uh, speech was very rapid. Uh, 
she was tangential in her discourse, disorganized to a degree. And uh, obviously, all of us within that scenario have doubt that she actually may have bipolar disorder. And the panic attacks were uh, part of uh, manifestation of bipolar disorders that commonly are. Uh, amongst anxiety disorders, panic disorder is quite frequent uh, in, in individuals who have bipolar disorder. Uh, in the past, OCD was uh, uh, grouped with anxiety disorder. It is also a common comorbidity of uh, bipolar disorder, as is PTSD. So I think it, it's uh, upon us to very carefully dissect and look at the symptoms and the pattern of occurrence. So if uh, one has uh, anxiety symptoms with no mood symptoms, it is quite possible that they actually have an independent anxiety disorder. On the other hand, if panic attacks occur only in context of uh, bipolar illness, they may be one of the manifestations of bipolar illness. And we do know that patients with bipolar disorder based on genetic study can have significant genetic loading for anxiety disorders. And in that case, we see an earlier onset and more treatment resistance. So one can be anxious as manifestation of bipolar disorder. The other possibility is having anxiety disorder that is comorbid uh, with bipolar disorder. So again, looking at the sequence, uh, looking at the presence of anxiety symptoms in absence of mood symptoms uh, can often help us arrive to the correct diagnosis. Uh, I'm curious about your experience. Again, you're very seasoned clinicians. How, how do you deal with uh, this issue? Yeah, so Vlad, I, I think you're right. And what I have seen both clinically and from a research perspective, you know, you and I both see kids and adults. When I see an adult who presents with bipolar and I say, what did you look like when you were a kid? What did people think you had? Quite often in my young guys, they'll say, I had ADHD plus a temper. I had ADHD plus some emotional impulsivity and emotional dysregulation. And my diagnosis back then was ADHD plus ODD, ADHD plus whatever. It wasn't until later they realized I had bipolar. For a young woman, quite often, she had an anxiety disorder. I couldn't get out of my head. I couldn't shut my brain off. I couldn't sleep at night because I'd lay there and worry about that. I have a young woman just now. I've seen her for years. It's only now as she's about to head off to college. She's 18 now. that You can clearly see the signs of bipolar in this young girl that was treated for anxiety for many, many years. Let's talk about something that can happen, and this is the influence of trauma. So trauma can shift the way bipolar shows up. It can be comorbid with bipolar. It can cause an earlier onset. If you look at Joe Biederman's data, if you have the genetic risk of, of a bipolar, those kids that have trauma tend to have earlier onset. How do we kind of separate PTSD versus bipolar versus the conundrum of both of those together? Uh, indeed, uh, uh, one of the studies looked at individuals who have a family history of uh, bipolar disorder and uh, also early life adversity in form of either physical or sexual abuse. And they compared this group of individuals with individuals who had neither family history or history of early life adversity, early life abuse, again, physical or sexual abuse. And what they noted is that individuals who had both family history and also history of early life trauma, onset of illness was about seven to eight years earlier. 
So um, it is a it is a very sensitive uh, clinical topic, uh, especially if we're working with uh, younger individuals. So let's say they're twelve or thirteen, because it would not be unusual that abuser be a family member, and uh, in that case, it's probably good. Uh, to ask for permission of the adult that accompanies patient if it would be possible uh, to have uh, some alone time uh, during which we can very tactfully uh, explore whether there have been incidents of, of past trauma and uh, what is the nature of, of trauma. And also look at, uh, again, what came first. Uh, were their manifestations consistent with PTSD early on and then uh, bipolar disorder started later? Or did we uh, initially see uh, manifestations which are consistent with bipolar disorder? Uh, you, you have uh, pointed out, and this is so important, uh, that uh, uh, in general, uh, bipolar disorder doesn't have a very early onset. So it's late teens. Uh, if bipolar disorder has an early onset, so if the onset is at uh, uh, year 11, 12, it's actually uh, a very relevant, and in my mind, it would be a mistake not to ask about traumatic events. I think that's a great tip. It's a great tip. But let's lump two of these together. So substance-induced mania, and I'm going to lump in antidepressant-induced mania. And our old theories, if we had antidepressant-induced mania, we didn't call that bipolar. What, what do we do these days? If somebody has a manic episode, is that a manic episode? Or how do you tease that apart, Glenn? You know, it's, uh, again, it's uh, a very interesting issue because uh, uh, thanks to Hagopakiskal, we had many uh, different types of uh, bipolar disorder, including bipolar uh, disorder three. We can only speculate, in, in my mind, if a manic episode occurred, even if it is a result of utilization of antidepressant, it still is bipolar disorder. Uh, it could have been that uh, this individual had more prominent uh, genetic loading, genetic predisposition, and that it took just one event of this type to tip them over into the uh, uh, mania into a bipolar uh, one diagnosis in this case. Uh, similar can happen with other drugs. So uh, I've uh, clearly seen bipolar disorder that was uh, uh, precipitated by stimulants. And this is, again, a youngster, uh, 10, 11 years old, uh, treated in a rural area by primary care physician with stimulants. And he was not doing well. Initially did better, lost the response to a stimulant. Uh, clinician increased the dose of his stimulant. Uh, at the time when I saw him, uh, he had auditory hallucinations. He was clearly manic. He had not slept uh, uh, for uh, several days. And again, when we looked into his medications, again, this is 10, 11 year old. He was on 120 milligrams of methylphenidate. So yes, uh, it can be tipped by antidepressants. It can be tipped by stimulants. And I'm sure you have seen scenarios uh, where uh, uh, beta agonists, bronchodilatators in individuals who have asthma uh, have trigger, triggered uh, a manic or bipolar episode. Uh, so indeed, we have to be aware of these sensitivities and get a very 
good uh, medication history, but also inquire about alcohol and substance use uh, uh, because alcohol can induce instability and certain uh, uh, types of medications such as antidepressants and stimulants can clearly trigger, uh, trigger hypomanic and manic episodes. Okay, Vlad, we've got two minutes and I've got two topics I want to cover. So let's let's hit them quickly. Okay. Help, help me with something we deal with with clini- as clinicians. If somebody has recurrent depression, and I have good days at times, how do you sort out those good days or maybe a little bit too good of days? And it's really a hypomanic episode. Right. Uh, well, it is complicated by the fact that uh, uh, people do not see elevated mood as part of their psychopathology if they have, let's say, bipolar type 2. I'm an upbeat person who doesn't need a whole lot of sleep, who has a lot of energy, and uh, uh, who is very efficient and accomplishes a lot. So what they recognize as pathology is when they're in the midst of depressed mood. And uh, hypomanic periods, which can be as brief as 24 to 48 hours, just punctuate uh, uh, this depressive symptomatology. So it, it can go both ways. You can see depression uh, punctuated by these brief periods of elevated mood, increased productivity, uh, or uh, you, you can uh, start thinking, well, these periods of, of elevated mood are actually manifestations of hypomania, and my patient most likely has bipolar type 2. And then even further exploring, because it's not unusual for patients to have hypomania and mania, and uh, we should look more closely for any evidence of manic symptoms in the past as well. So at this point, I want to thank you for our fantastic conversation, Dr. Malatek. Thank you to everyone for listening. We hope you found this discussion to be informative for your clinical practice. And for more information on this series, please visit the show notes. And thank you and tune in again. Take care, everyone. Take care.